Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. There are two major exhibitions of 19th century French art in the United States right now. This week, we'll look at each of them. First, I'll chat with Jody Houtman, the lead curator of the Museum of Modern Art exhibition, Edgar Degas, A Strange New Beauty. The show and its outstanding catalog examined Degas' monotypes and how he made monotypes into a broader practice. The exhibition includes 120 of them and 60 related works, including paintings, drawings, pastels, and more. Hauptmann was joined in the project by conservator Carl Buchberg, as well as Heidi Herschel and Richard Kendall. It's on view in New York through July 24th. Then, Lynn Ambrosini, the co-curator of Daubigny, Monet, Van Gogh, Impressions of Landscape. The exhibition, on which Ambrosini collaborated with five other co-curators, examines Charles-Francois Daubigny's work and especially his impact on 19th century European landscape painting. It will be at Cincinnati's Taft Museum of Art through May 29th. The exhibition's excellent, richly illustrated catalog was published by the National Galleries of Scotland. Jody Houtman is up first, after the break. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness, featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilius Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt-Brown director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. And we're back. Jody Hauptman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we get into the specifics of Degas, I think it's probably a, a good idea to start in the simplest possible place, and that is, what is a monotype? Yes, that is a good place to start. A monotype 
is essentially a hybrid of a drawing and a print. It's a drawing that's been printed. And so what Degas or other artists who make monotypes do is they usually start with a copper plate. Degas used copper and zinc plates. And he would draw on the plate with printer's ink, black printer's ink. And then he would sandwich the plate with a damp piece of paper and then run it through the press. And generally, monotype results in a single image. It's, it's a monoprint. But Degas, who was always making materials do things that they weren't meant to do, always defying convention, often also defied the monotype singularity. And I, I think I would also add that monotype or Degas monotypes have often been divided into two categories, one called a light field and one called a dark field. And a light field is when Degas would draw on the plate in an additive way, very much like drawing on a piece of paper. And then in the dark field, Degas would, it was a kind of subtractive process. So Degas would lay a curtain of ink on the plate and then draw by removal. And so in those works, the image appears to kind of emerge out of darkness. And although the the monotypes by Degas have been divided into those two categories. One of the things that we show in the exhibition is that actually he was often mixing those two methods. You mentioned that one of the things Degas does is he defies what monotypes typically are by making multiple states, you know, by, or by printing multiple states of a monotype. How does he do this? And do you have a favorite example or two? Well, Monotype, as I said, the artist draws on the plate, sandwiches it with the piece of paper and runs to the press. And when you peel the paper off, you get this single image. But often there's still ink left on the plate. And so in those cases, Degas would run the plate through a second time, make another sandwich with the damp piece of paper, run it through the press. And what would result would be a kind of ghost image, a degraded image of the first. So it's not so much a state, actually, because when we when in printmaking, when we think about states, usually the artist has done something to it, done something to the plate. But in this case, it's generally a situation where he hasn't done anything at all. He's just printed from the remaining ink. And so then what he would often do with that kind of ghost image is he would use it as a tonal map and he would enhance that image with pastel. And so the result would be two works that were both the same and different from one another. And this was very instructive for Degas, who was interest in, in, very interested in repetition and transformation and variation. So it was a kind of replication, but it was also a variation. And so even when you think about other kinds of printmaking, etching or lithography, the purpose is usually to make an addition, to make multiples that were exactly the same. But Degas was always interested in more in variation. What What's another kind of image that can be made? What's another possibility? And I, one thing I should add also is about when he enhances the, the second impression with pastel, sometimes he sticks quite closely to the first image and sometimes he wholly transforms the composition or the figures within it. And sometimes he covers the the print so thickly with pastel that you can barely see the monotype. And in other cases, he 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 does it more lightly. And so there's this beautiful interaction of this kind of gray tone and this colorful colorful pastel that almost it's almost kind of a geological structure. If you're going to do a cross section, you would see the way the pastel kind of sits on top of the monotype inking below. 
I'm guessing that a good example of the latter is uh, a ballet scene he ran off in late 1870s, one version at the Clark and one version in a private, the pastel version in a private collection. Yeah, that's one of the most beautiful and striking cases of, of a first pull and a uh, second pastelized impression. Uh, sometimes we refer to those those two works as cognates, cognate pairs. And in that case, the Clark Three Ballerinas is so evocative and it's and it's these dancers really do seem like they're emerging out of darkness and you get the sense of the impact of the footlights as they illuminated the dancers. So it's a that's an, a really beautiful example of that dark field technique. And you also see how Degas, in in creating that image in a subtractive way, he's using a, a host of tools. He's really expanding his toolbox. So instead of just using a brush, he's using rags, he's using his own hands, he's using the back of the brush or some kind of pointed implement to to create the, the very fine detail. And then in the in this in the second impression that's covered with pastel, he's you know those dancers are in kind of clothed in that in that gorgeous pink, and he's added figures on the left side of the image. And so in that case, he's he has he has kind of significantly changed it. I think I think the other thing I would say about that Clark work that I think is so striking and kind of gets to the heart of what Degas could do in monotype is that you really get a sense of the way the dancers are leaping into the air or kind of landing back on the ground or on on the floor of the stage. And Degas is asked at some point why he depicts dancers, what his interest in dancers is. And he says, well, it's really just an excuse for depicting movement. And, And although you see dancers you know, we, we know Degas is the great chronicler of the ballet and the painter of dancers, but it's really in monotype where you do get that sense of movement. And it's because the medium allowed him or encouraged him to, to be more gestural with his mark making. And so I think that gesture was a kind of perfect way to depict flux and motion. The other thing that jumps out at me in in those two pieces is the floor. It's it's probably the thing that stays the the most the same between the two works, but because of its I know these words are wrong, but color, tone, depth of depth of dark gray slash black, it really pushes or allows the figures to be pushed forward. Right. And I think that that seems to me. Yeah. Right. I think it also does really help depict the the motion of the dancers because right. the flooring right. is on that angle. And Degas likely created that those angular striations with a rag or maybe with a, a, a brush with very dried and hard bristles. And the, the combination of those uh, the, the kind of force of those angles and the the bright feet uh, that that are uh, that are against them kind of so so there's there's the angular brush strokes and then those vertical the vertical feet make it appear that they're lifting up and away from the floor and you mentioned a moment ago that Degas would often make changes between the pastel over monotype and the original if you will monotype on paper so when i read through the catalog one possible example of that and, and, and the two pieces are definitely different, are um, a pastel over monotype from the Musée d'Orsay of a woman in her bath sponging her leg and a monotype in a private collection of a woman in a bathtub. And they're close, but they're also totally different. 
right? Totally different in mood, in feel, and also in the story that the that the composition or the 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 story that the work tells. And so the woman that's seen only in black ink, the first impression, is part of a group of works that we refer to the in the exhibition as dark field bathers. And this is these are done probably in the late 1870s into the early 1880s. And they, by and large, depict uh, women in in intimate settings. So they're bathing or they're getting dressed or they're reading and they're, they, they're isolated and insulated from the outside world. And in this case, we have this figure who almost seems to be bathed in a bath of black ink. It's so dark. He's using this dark field method where he draws by removal. And she is the this the space is dark. She is her 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 hand and her arm are very are drawn in a kind of rough way. Um some people have have compared the hand to a claw. And her head and the, her features are quite ambiguous. And she kind of, as I said, she seems to be almost sitting in a in a bath of ink, and she's kind of melting into her environment. So it's very dark. It's ambiguous. And then the pastel version, uh, the pastelized second impression, is evenly lit. It's bright. She's uh, the figure is has been kind of prettified, slimmed down. It's the the uh, what what was ambiguous in the dark field work is now resolved by a pastel, and you get the details of the room. It's clear that she's washing her leg. And and one of the wonderful moves that Degas makes from the the first print to the second is that if you'll notice in the middle of the image there are two spigots indicating that this is an apartment that has running water. So this is a a fancy apartment. And, and the spigot and the spigots are dead smack middle. In fact, they're almost the first place the eye goes. It might be the whitest with the exception of the window at the far left, might be the whitest part of the print. Right. And he's used this very sharp implement to define that. And it, they have a yeah. kind of swan neck that would have you know, allowed the water to come up and then flow down into the tub. And on the left side of the print, you'll also see there's a, a chair that has a little bit of a curve. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a nice looking chair. And then in the, in the pastelized version, Degas has removed those spigots She's eliminated them. So so this is a tub and a bathroom that has no running water. This would have been 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 one that that the that the bather would have had to lug water up and pour it in. And also the chair on the left is much simpler. It's a it's a simple bent wood chair. So he's not only changed the mood of the work, he's not only resolved the figure into something recognizable, but he's also changed the class of the of the subject and her environs. That's great. Is there any reason you can think of he also would have changed the right-hand background to provide a window and looks like ivy growing outside? Well, I think it's it's part of resolving the image. All of that detail that you get that's so specific and mm -hmm. can be uh, described, you don't get in those dark field bathers, including this one. It's, it's much more mysterious. What you're seeing is unclear or can you can define it in a number of ways. And so 
of course, to our, our mo very modern or contemporary eyes, the the idea of that ambiguity is very intriguing. Whereas in Degas' day, the works that were pastelized were the ones that generally would go out in the market. So it's you know they had a different. So the the the, the monotype made with printer's ink left without pastel was a more private exploratory practice, sometimes given to friends, but mostly kept for himself. Whereas the ones with pastel, he he understood could be exhibited and could be sold. And, and in fact, at some point, Degas says, there's this wonderful kind of conversation he has with a colleague. And, and he says that if it were up to him, he would have, he says, if it were up to me, I would only work in black and white. But you know, the people want color. So I have to give them color. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the that's the sense, you know, so his real dedication to, to depicting things in, you know, with blacks is, is he acknowledged that. Is Degas' choice of subject matter pretty in line with what he does in other media or are there places where his interests and focus veer off? So the answer is yes and no. We try to show in the exhibition points of contact between works in monotype and other mediums, paintings, pastel, drawings, sketchbooks. And we try to show that on a material level because there are things that Degas did in monotype that then encouraged certain things in other mediums. So for example, there was a kind of looser, more gestural line in monotype, and you begin to see that in his in other kinds of drawing and in painting. So there's definitely uh, connections on that material level. But in terms of subject matter, uh, certainly ballet dancers, cafe singers, scenes of modern life, people hanging around in cafes, you see in monotype and also in painting and, and drawing. I, I would argue a little bit that the ability of monotype to express flux and change allowed or or in those works you see a, a particular depiction of the experience of modern life that you get in monotype that maybe you don't get in the same way in painting or 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 drawing or other kinds of printmaking so it really does capture that experience but the the one subject that he only treats in monotype is the brothel and so he might have made, or prostitutes might have been, you know, sitters for him for other works. But the those the brothel works are the only ones where he's really giving us kind of the or trying to depict the scene of the brothel um, in the in the same way that he depicts the backstage at the ballet. You mentioned that feeling of of things being in flux in the monotypes. For me, in the book, it looks like he's getting a greater sense of movement than he does in paintings. Is that something he's looking for, or am I reading in because I know that might be possible given the medium? No, that's what we see in these works. And one of the things that we try to show in the exhibition is that Degas was always searching for new techniques for new subjects. And of course, the most important subject or the, the most pressing subject for him was uh, the expansion of the city, the hustle and bustle of the urban environment. And monotype really seemed to be a perfect medium to depict that. And just to go back to kind of a little bit of the technical explanation of monotype, for, with monotype, you can make a change right up until the moment that you print it. 
And so you can draw on the plate. And if you don't like something, you can wipe it off or you can wipe part of it off. And so it's only at the very instant that you print it that, you, that you've kind of committed to that, uh, to that image. And so the monotype encouraged a, this a sense for Degas of spontaneity, malleability, an ability to ch- make changes. I've already said this, this is the kind of gesture that the slick plate and the viscous ink allowed. You know, so the plate, the plate was very slick, the ink was viscous, and it allowed him to move it with ease across the plate. And that encouraged this kind of gesture, um, a kind of gestural drawing that we don't think of with Degas. And you know, we have to we have to remember that Degas for 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 Degas, Ang was the great draftsman, and so and that's who he he really thought about as a young artist. And so to make something that was gestural, that wasn't about precision or a precise line, was a real defiance of what he had learned. And so we try to show in the exhibition that the medium encouraged certain directions of the work and and certainly that that ability to show flux and change and and I think related and this is something you see in painting but so beautifully done in monotype where Degas is, is such a master at cropping an image and so mm. in the monotypes often uh, there is you know there's a figure that's coming in and out of the frame and there's, you know, where, a, you know, you see part of a tutu and a leg in a work um, from the series of the Cardinal family. And, you know, that, that movement in and out, you know, the use of the edge of the plate to, to create a kind of dynamism within the composition is something that, that he really takes advantage of in monotype. It's something that we see in Bernard's paintings, you know, kind of action at the edge of the pseudo film still. And it's definitely in, 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 in these. My guest is Jody Houndman. We'll be right back after a break. In Roman decor, elaborate mosaics transformed entire rooms into spectacular settings of vibrant color, figural imagery, and abstract design. On view now at the Getty Villa, Roman mosaics across the empire showcases the Getty Museum's collection of mosaics from the 2nd to the 6th century, tracing their histories throughout the Roman Empire. An online catalog allows you to come along on this journey from anywhere in the world. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Sculpted in Steel, a luxurious display of innovative, machine-inspired Art Deco style. Featuring 14 cars and three motorcycles, along with vintage images and videos from this iconic period, now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash sculptedinsteel for more. And now back to my conversation with Jody Hauptman. About the ink and its viscosity and the temptation to use one in its hands and fingers with it. You wrote, quote, the monotypes reveal both the importance of the hand's labor, their touch, to his inexorable probing and the endlessness of his quest. Are there a couple really good examples of how hands touch fingers 
are important to Degas in making these pieces? There, there's so many. And, and once you see one fingerprint, you begin to see them everywhere. And in the, in the exhibition, we've provided magnifying glasses to our visitors so they can have a closer look and really see the way Degas is almost sculpting the ink as he's rendering a figure or landscape. And one of the ones that's so evocative is a small landscape from the MFA in Boston, right at the beginning of the exhibition. And so in that work, he's just taken his finger and he's moved it from right to left across, just horizontally across. And that creates this horizontal shape of that landscape. And then he goes back in and above that, He's taken maybe his thumb or a finger and he's added a little bit of texture above. And so in that kind of, you know, that's a, a small gesture, but you get the sense of him immersing in a, in a completely bodily way into these works. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, the, his willingness to leave the evidence of his hands in, in the works is that when we think about printmaking and even a monotype that has the most is the kind of the most hands-on of of printmaking, you know, you've you've made the drawing on the plate and you've run it through the press and there's a transfer from plate to paper. So there's a kind of maybe a kind of distance or something that happens mechanically. But what Degas does is knowing that he leaves his hands in there, his fingers in there. So even though there is that distance, the hand is always front and center. He doesn't let you forget that these are these are something that that he's made. The MFA Boston landscape you mentioned is the river. It's from 1877-79. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. Speaking of landscapes, one of the one of Degas' more acute explorations is a series of landscapes that he makes by by using oil with with monotype. What about that interests him, and why oil for landscapes in that context? So Degas uses black printer's ink from the mid eighteen seventies when he gets introduced to the medium till about the mid eighteen eighties, and then he stops making monotypes for a while. And then in eighteen ninety, he goes on this trip to the into the countryside. It's was a 20-day trip by horse and carriage to a friend's house, uh, Janio, who was a printmaker. And he, there, is a, there is a press at the house when he arrives. And it said that he arrived and he said, I want to make monotypes. But instead of using printer's ink, which would have been the, you know, the, the medium that would, you would expect him to use, he uses oil paint. And that's significant on a number of levels. One, that you know, the willingness to innovate, to use something that you wouldn't ordinarily use is just uh, part and parcel with what we see of Degas' experimentation, where he's always trying new things, always interested in sharing recipes with with artist colleagues. So it, it doesn't surprise us that he tried something new, but it is a surprising choice for printmaking at that time. And what uh, the the oil paint is much more liquid than the sticky, viscous printer's ink. And so what that seemed to encourage is these kind of washes of color that you see in those abs- th- those landscapes that really 
are verging on abstraction. And that's especially the, the kind of liquidity of the of the oil paint is is especially clear in the work in MoMA's collection that has a kind of emerald green blob or schmush, as we've been calling it in a, in a, in a very technical way. And so what Degas would have done is just he he would have taken quite a bit of that emerald green paint and put it on the plate. And then as it ran through the press, it would it would smush across across the sheet. And you can even see if you look at the very bottom of that image, the way the oil paint has even come down below the edge of the plate, the plate mark. So it really was was liquid. And you know, is it, you know, does that, did that shape have a kind of narrative purpose in the landscape? It's hard to say, but there's a clear sense of interest in what can the materials do. And in, in the landscapes, he is really balancing chance and control. You know, how do you control that liquid paint and, and how does it, you know, or how do I let it do what it wants to do? And so you see that in these works that seem to they seem to evoke the landscape without really describing it. And, and even though there are many, many of them have titles that refer to particular places, those titles came later. And I think that it, it is much more about evoking a sense of of the land. And and Degas himself really understood the 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 modernity of his of his point of view in those works. Because he says, when he's asked about making them, he says that one of the inspirations was the view out of a moving train. And so you have to think back, you know, to the 19th century. And of course, the train isn't new in the 1890s, but it is still a little bit new. And someone like Degas would have, you know, mostly mostly moved, the fastest he would have moved would be, would have been at the speed of a moving horse. And so what does it feel like to move at the speed of a train? How does it change your vision? How do you depict that sense of speed and movement? And those are the kind of things I think we're seeing in those landscapes. And, and I think also the other the other thing that is just interesting to think about is that, you know, Often when we talk about these landscapes, we're using words like chance or abstraction. And of course, those are words we think of in art of the 20th century and even in... There, you know, there are vocabulary, uh, yeah, not yeah, their vocabulary. Right, art of the 1960s. So, but, but here's an artist in, 18, in the early 1890s who really is using chance in a way or making things that, that, that aren't about resolution. And we'll, we'll have images of several of these on the website. They're really abstract. I mean, they're... You know, if the titles weren't there, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, you wouldn't necessarily even, in some cases, you wouldn't necessarily identify them as landscapes. It's more like a colored washes or kind of, a, you know. Almost a, color fields. Right, right, right. For another another 20th century word or, at, yeah. or atmosphere. So, but then he does, as he does in his monotypes in black ink he goes back in with these with pastel in some cases and in, and again like the other like the the black ink monotypes he resolves the image and so you see something that's much more recognizable as as landscape or as hill or as river this is the second exhibition of late 19th century artists working in monotype at MoMA in the last three years. Uh, the other example is Star Figura's Gauguin show from 2014, one of my favorite shows of all time. 
Is it pure coincidence that two of you have done late 19th century French monotype shows in three years, or is this a product of a shared investigation? How did that, I mean, is that coincidence or is there something else there? Well, it, it is coincidence, but I think it's also evidence of a shared interest in in materials and, and how artists' choices about techniques or or materials really do have meaning have a there's something that we in in order to understand their work we believe that you really it's really important to dig into what they do with their materials and I think that's something that Star and I shared in these two projects the thinking about Degas started almost well even more than eight years ago and so so I'd been thinking about Degas and trying to think about what, you know, what really what to do with him at moment. There never been had never been a monographic exhibition on the artist since the museum's founding. And and even though we do have wonderful things in the collection. And so when I was starting to investigate his work, I was always struck by his material experimentation, how he deeply understood materials, but was always pushing them to new limits or beyond limits, really. And, and so, so, and that's really how I got to the monotypes where he seemed to be the most experimental, the most willing to defy convention, a place where he was really the most modern. And, and I think in a way, Star also in looking at Gauguin kind of came to a similar conclusion. And, and there's certainly that the interest in extracting multiple works from a single image and the kind of repetitions, the interest in reversals, like all like that's really shared by by these two artists. One of the the the, the remarkable things about both that show and this one is how the curator, in this case you, brought together works from that are now in very different geographies, museums in Central Europe, private collections in New York or on the West Coast and 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 brought them together based on because they were they were related pictorially or came from or they were a pastel over a monotype how did you you know at the end of a show it's easy to say oh i understand why all that goes together going into the show did you anticipate those groupings or did that entirely come out of the research how does that work well, I, maybe I should just say that there's there are 180 works in the exhibition, 89 lenders, half from public collections, half from private, half from the U.S. and half from abroad. So yes, it was a it was it was a real effort to bring things from diverse collections together, many of which maybe hadn't been together since leaving Degas' studio at his death. So so yeah, we we there there is a a, a big effort in trying to think about what what we want and what we need. And we were very fortunate that in 1968, uh, Eugenia Janus published a catalog resume of the monotypes. And it it came out of a graduate work at Harvard and the and it and there was an exhibition at the fog of uh, monotypes and that was really the last time there was there's been an exhibition on monotypes in the US it was in, was at that time in 1968 and so we had this incredible 
deep research that she had done. You know, thinking about it now, you know, no computer, probably note cards and legal pads like, and, and, not, and even not being able to see everything. Sometimes she was working from photographs. So we had, we knew that we had a, a core group of works in a way to choose from. Degas made over 300 monotypes over these, the two campaigns, the, the, in black ink and in, and in oil paint. And then, and then we wanted to make sure that we gave a full overview of the, of the body of work. So started to think about, you know, what kinds of topics we wanted to represent, what kinds of material innovations did we want to represent. But I think in terms of, of real, the, the most difficult part of, of gathering these works was really bringing together those cognate pairs, because in, in, in almost every case, the first impression and the second pastelized impression lived in different homes, on, often on the other side of the world. So, so we really did work hard to, and we, to, do, to get those together. And we didn't want to do it every time, because, but we wanted to do it in certain moments for certain, certain kinds of images and certain, again, certain, certain works that had technical properties that, that would be important for the argument. But, but I think also, you know, you asked about groupings. And I, I think this is the kind of work that you really do want to think about in groupings. Not that we think that Degas did ballet dancers and then cafe singers and then and then brothels, you know, one after another. He really did immerse in, with such enthusiasm and he was just making them all the time. And, and, and I keep quoting this friend of his uh, because I think it's so evocative where the friend says, he's no longer a man, he's a plate, he's covered in ink and he's gone through the press. And that just gets at this, the kind of like embrace of the medium, you know, he's literally covered in it. And so, so he's, he's just making these things all the time. And I think that one work might relate to another or, and Degas was always recycling his own subjects. So it makes sense to think about clusters and groupings and, and how things relate either um, in terms of a composition or in terms of a subject. So we did always think about the exhibition in terms of groupings. Jody Houndman, thanks so much for talking with me again. Great. Thanks so much. The Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan has reinstalled its entire fourth floor galleries with works exclusively from the 1960s in the new exhibition From the Collection, 1960 to 1969. Aimed to inspire a variety of fresh discoveries and unexpected connections, this presentation interweaves works from all of MoMA's curatorial departments and focuses on a decade in which experimentation flourished, traditional mediums were transformed, and socio-political upheaval occurred across the globe. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Welcome back. My next guest is Lynn Ambrosini curator at the Taft Museum of Art in Cincinnati. 
She's one of six co-curators of Daubigny, Monet, Van Gogh, Impressions of Landscape, and truth told, the whole show was her idea. The exhibition's on view at the Taft through May 29th. The catalog, published by the National Galleries of Scotland, is fantastic, and I can't recommend it enough. Lynn Ambrosini, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. I think that to set the stage for Daubigny, we should first explain why landscapes made by he and Corot and Rousseau and such were so different from what had come before. What was the dominant mode of French landscape painting up until the early to mid 19th century? Well, the most important fact to consider is that landscape had been an extremely minor genre through the preceding centuries, considered very low on the totem pole. There was a strict hierarchy of paintings as determined by the French Academy, the all-powerful center of the art world. And on that totem pole, subject matter that dealt with lofty moral themes, such as history painting, scenes of religious import or moral or ethical tales, occupied the top rung. At the very bottom were landscape and still life. And in order to ennoble landscape, French artists had, since the 17th century, attempting to elevate this genre, had loaded it with that kind of narrative. Historical, biblical, mythological narratives were what one saw in most landscape, uh, with the exception of the lovely digression into the Rococo period. But certainly with the revolution of 1789, the birth of neoclassicism, the Great Revolution, and the call to a more moral patriotism and a new code of ethics befitting the new French empire. Landscape existed almost exclusively in this realm of Italian scenes, scenes set in what looked like ancient Greece or Rome, with remains of temples and figures dressed in an imaginary mode of of the antique. And whether or not you had been to Italy, you included this kind of Roman Campania landscape, and your figures were all, you know, dressed a la antique. So what the generation of 1830 did, and really Daubigny isn't included among them, but what that generation did was to decisively reorient landscape towards painting France. And that was part of an entire cultural movement, the nationalist movement sweeping Europe. Uh, it was to discover the beauties of one's own country. And however mythological or what we call most properly Historical landscape persisted as a genre right up into the 1850s. Meanwhile, there was an enormous reevaluation of landscape as the middle classes grew and prospered in France in the 1830s through 50s. And by 1860, landscape was the single most numerous genre of painting exhibited at the Paris salons. So there had been an entire reversal of the hierarchy promoted by the interests of the newer viewing public and the more accessible landscape subject, which one didn't have to have been to a classical lycée to understand landscapes of France, 
became the new normal and the kind of painting that everyone understood and, and anyone of means could collect and enjoy. Daubigny doesn't just paint landscapes. He paints landscapes with workers in them, with people of modest station in them. Why is that an interest of his? Daubigny considered himself a realist. He etched the word realism into his only etched self-portrait, a picture of himself working on his studio boat. The edition was published in 1862. And he completely parted ways with with any attempt to paint historical landscapes. The last one he painted was in 1839 and exhibited at the 1840 Salon. And he made a very conscious break with the academic style and committed himself to painting only landscapes that he could see, observe, and study on site. So he would have answered your question, I'm quite sure, I've had the privilege of reading a lot of his letters by saying that he wanted to paint the people he saw in the place where he saw them. Uh, however, he didn't only paint working class people, peasants, fishermen. In some of his paintings, we also see figures of middle class people. And they're rarer, but they were an important precedent for the next generation of artists, the Impressionists. So to what extent is he getting his ideas, both compositional and in terms of, say, the people he chooses to include in his pictures, doing the things they're doing, walking through a landscape, reaping wheat, what have you? To what extent do you think he's getting information and ideas from Dutch Golden Age landscape painting? Dutch painting of the 17th century was enormously important to him as a younger artist. He studied with two different academic artists. First, his very first lessons were with his father, a minor neoclassical landscapist. And then he studied with an artist named Pierre Santiez, largely forgotten now, but an academic painter. And then with Paul Delaroche, a much better artist, then at the, you know, the high point of his career, yes, may not be well-known to everyone but now, but at the time, Delaroche was a name to conjure with. He was considered one of the leaders of uh, painting in France during under the July monarchy, 1830 to 48. And nonetheless, on a technicality, Daubigny failed to get entrance to the, failed to compete successfully in the Prix de Rome for landscape. And at that point, simply made the got the rest of his education. He dropped out of the academic instruction programs that he had been following and began to study more in the Louvre and from outdoors. And we know that he made reproductive engravings after Rembrandt, two important engravings and one important reproductive engraving after uh, Jakob Roysdale. And so, yes, he was absolutely looking at Dutch landscapists. However, he spent far more of his time outside than he did after a youthful period of working in the Louvre. He really reoriented very definitively to drawing his inspiration from the outdoor world. And from he was known for taking very long trips, much of, much of the tramp tramping around in the countryside was 
up steep hills and over dales and to places people had not had not been before. He sojourned extensively in his younger career in southeastern France, in the area around the Rhone River Valley, in the French Alps. He was very keen on seeing new sites and finding new parts of France that people hadn't painted yet. So that became his guiding influence. And you see strong, you see a strong influence of the Dutch 17th century painters only in the early work, and I'm talking about work in the 1840s and 50s, but he's very quickly finds his own formats, his own compositions, which uh, really don't resemble anything done before by the mid-1850s. Yeah, the clearest example of a Dutch-inspired landscape is Crossroads of the Eagle's Nest in Minneapolis, which dates to 43-44. In the 1850s and 60s in France, as in the United States, the development of tourism has an impact on on artists and, and the subjects they choose. Do we see that in Daubigny, and if so, how? Absolutely. One of his favorite areas in France to paint was on the Normandy coast, the English Channel coast, which was um, with the construction of the French railway system, a huge initial piece of which was built in the 1840s, Parisians could easily get to Normandy in far less time than they had had to spend taking a coach. And so there was a great development of the coastal watering places. And it's interesting that Daubigny took advantage of that, not only for his own transportation, but also in terms of subject matter. However, where other artists were interested in painting the new life at these resorts with the bathing cabins and the hotels and the happy Parisians in bathing costume, at the sea, Daubigny sought out instead a rather untouched fishing village, Villerville-sur-Mer, where he would go for his stays in the uh, late summer and would paint, tried to get there almost every year. And he was more interested in the untouched landscape, the, the small fishing village landscape, uh, with the occasional peasant or seaweed gatherer, fisherman coming back from the boats. And what this was really about was that he was he was participating both as a consumer of this exquisite coastline, you know, the release of being at the ocean, but he was also pretty savvy about how he could find a market for his work. And he recognized that his landscapes could appeal to those very people who were vacationing two miles up the coast at Trouville or Deauville, who wanted perhaps a beautiful painting of the coast in their parlors back in Paris. So just as with his paintings of the French riverways, where he left out views of the new uh, factories lining the coasts of the Seine or the Oise River. 
and instead presented a somewhat retrospective pastoral view of the countryside of France and its great verdant beauty. Uh, in the same way, he could present to potential collectors the untouched, pristine beauty of the French coast with its waves striking the rocks and cliffs of Normandy. Succeeding generations loved including those factories, most notably perhaps Pizarro, who did it, as far as I'm concerned, better than anybody else. You know, one of the things we see coming into French art in this period is is paintings of land, sea, horizon line, sky. Corbet does it, Daubigny does it, and this is really kind of the first time we really get those paintings in, 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 in French art. Are, are these guys all doing it because of some philosophical reason, or were they doing it because they sold? I'd like to come back to that for a minute. I just wanted to add a sort of codicil to, to what I mentioned before. Daubigny did, in early in his career, include factories in some of his views of the riverbanks of the Oise and Seine. And they were seen at a bit of a distance, just as Pizarro would, a decade later, include them in a sort of mise-en-scene that en encompassed scenic boats, bridges, distant houses, and a factory. And Daubigny did that too, right up until about 1860. But his letters from this time describe a disenchantment with the Industrial Revolution and the ravages that it, it was taking on the French rivers. And so he, he would go back to places he had been before. Actually, it happened once in southern France. He went back to paint in a beautiful forest and when, uh, alongside a river. And when he got here, there, he exclaimed in a letter that the trees had all been raised in order for new buildings. And he was very saddened. And so at this point, he begins to efface the signs of industrialism from his pictures. And he must have had to ignore the huge freight barges that were plying the rivers of the Seine and Oise and wait until the waters had subsided again in order to paint his relatively placid pictures of an untouched rural paradise. But it's interesting that just as there's something very close in what I'm saying is between the way Daubigny depicts industry in the 1850s and the way that Pizarro will depict industry beginning in the 1860s. And I just wanted to make that point. But then Regarding your question, that was actually one of, along with river scenes painted from the middle of a river, which hadn't been done before, Daubigny also was one of the first artists to paint these startlingly immediate views of the ocean seen frontally without any kind of oblique angle and without any land on which the viewer could imaginatively stand. So you look at the painting, and we have one of these in the exhibition. There are plenty of other examples in Daubigny's oeuvre, but uh, you look at the painting, and you would swear that you are suspended in midair, hanging over the water, because there's no ground plane. It's just 
water, which fills somewhere close to a half of the canvas, and then the horizon line, and then a spectacular sky, and the conditions, the meteorological conditions of the sky have everything to do with how the water is depicted. It's all part of a whole, perceived as a whole, with deep attention to the conditions of the day and the light. And that was something that Daubigny had begun to paint in the late 1850s. And before he or Courbet could have realized that Courbet was doing something similar on the Mediterranean coast, although in the Courbet pictures of this type, painted in 1855-56, Courbet always includes some of the sand and some rocks, things like that, to sort of anchor you. Daubigny's are rather more unusual in their stark uh, presentation of just it's basically two bands of pictorial surface. And if it were not for the occasional insertion of a small ship and or mast at the horizon and the graduated treatment of the paint thickness towards the horizon, you would really feel, and there's some degree of this anyway, you feel the materiality and the flatness of the picture surface because there's very little to cue you into a three-dimensional perception. And in this, Daubigny was really setting a type which would be taken up by later artists, most notably by Monet, who also painted a group of these strictly frontal bipartite views of the ocean in Normandy about a decade after Daubigny, in which all you see is water in the foreground and sky above it. They're very striking paintings, and there's every reason to think that Monet must have seen some of these pictures by Daubigny. As we get into the 1860s and 70s, Daubigny and the painters that we now think of as Impressionists began to influence each other. Is there a way of pulling out specific points of, of influence or reference even as they're moving back and forth in, in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yes. And it's fascinating. And that is one of the focal points of the exhibition. Actually, the first clear instance of the influence I would date to 1859, when the young Claude Monet comes from his native province, Normandy, visits Paris and visits the Paris Salon, the annual art exhibition sponsored by the government, and comments in a letter to his good friend Eugène Boudin back in Normandy and his mentor that the Daubigny paintings at the Salon are something quite wonderful and that one, in particular, a painting of En Fleur, and we, don't, we haven't been able to locate that painting, is sublime, he says. And so we know that Monet is looking at Daubigny. And two weeks later, he writes back again to Boudin and says, it would be a mistake if you, if you were not to come to the exhibition and see the paintings by Daubigny. And, and I believe that was because Boudin and Monet were both eyeing a sort of special specialization in pictures of Normandy. And here they were in Paris, and they discover a better-known artist 
who's doing it. And he's a realist and he's painting it the way they want to paint it with a kind of objective tone without a, a lot of narrative and with an utter fascination for the effects of outdoor light, for painting, working outdoors, for, for capturing the nuances of light and atmosphere in the painting, as you can only do when you work outdoors. And so there, that was quite an important discovery. About that time, Monet boasted in another letter that his aunt had given him a painting by Daubigny, and he was quite proud of, of this. And he had actually been scrounging through his aunt's attic in Normandy and had discovered an old sketch that kind of disused and dusty and asked his aunt if he could have it. And it was a Daubigny. So, <laughs> but he was, nonetheless, he was, he was pleased to have it. And then we know that in the early 60s, there are other instances of, of influence and borrowing, which are demonstrated in the exhibition and in the catalog of close parallelisms in how Monet envisions some of his early coastal paintings. We place one in particular from the Salon of 1865 next to a large Similarly, large coastal view by Daubigny from this previous year's Salon, 1864, and it's no question that Monet is, is challenging Daubigny, you know, vying with a respected elder. And then fast forward to 1856, I'm sorry, 65, and you see Daubigny defending the works of the young Impressionists from his new position on the Salon jury. So he defended works by the young Paul Cezanne, by Monet, by Pizarro, by Renoir, and they greatly appreciated that. They invited Daubigny to exhibit with them in a failed exhibition plan. It never got off the ground in 1868. So there was a, already a great deal of exchange by this point. And then there was the much better known sequence of events that occurred in London during the Franco-Prussian War. By the way, in the late 60s, Daubigny, not any of these young future Impressionists, was the one mentioned by the critics as being the, the leader of the school of, quote, the Impression blamed repeatedly and roundly by conservative critics for not finishing his canvases and for exhibiting sketches. So all of the same charges that would be leveled at the Young Impressionists in the following decade were leveled at Daubigny the decade before. So it's, it's very, very clear that there was a dialogue going on. And as I was mentioning in London by 1870 to 71, when Daubigny with his family Monet with his young family and Pizarro with his family all sought refuge in London. And Daubigny actually bumped into Monet. Both were working on the Thames one day painting. He learned that Monet was barely able to feed his family. And he introduced both Monet and Pizarro to his dealer, who was also in London during the war, Paul Durand Ruel. Monet said years later that Daubigny 
literally saved his life, that these are things, that his kindness that, that one never forgets. And so Daubigny was really quite unselfish in his promotion of these younger artists. He recognized a shared community of interests, I believe, with them and went out of his way to, to help them. One of Daubigny's practices that Monet picked up on was painting from the middle of a river in a boat. Monet made it famous, but he got it from Daubigny. That's right. Daubigny launched his studio boat, for, made his first trip on the Seine River in the fall of 1857. And the people who saw him in, invariably laughed. He had taken a a ferry boat, a disused ferry boat, and had someone built a cabin on it. And it looked like a little box-like cabin, large enough that three or four people could stretch out and sleep in it, equipped with pots, pans, onions, bottles of wine, fish when they caught them from the river. And people called it the little box because of its odd appearance, which in the, the slang of the area is um, Botin, and so it was christened Le Botin. And Daubigny made trips up and down the rivers of central France, the Seine, the Oise, the Marne, and, and other rivers, sometimes for a week or more, and uh, sometimes even longer. Every spring, summer, and fall, when the weather permitted, he would be off uh, painting. This allowed him to paint at dawn, at dusk, and he set up an easel in the stern of the boat with a large opening he could look through. And this introduced a new kind of pictorial composition, like his views of the ocean frontally. He, he really wanted to suspend the viewer in midair over the, the water. And you look back at the banks of the river and you see splendid reflections in the water the reflections and the effects of the sky, the weather on the water become the essential subject of the painting in a way that quite prefigures in some cases when the waters are still and there are water lilies and other plants floating on the water. You, there are sections of these pictures where you would swear you were looking at an early Monet and you are inevitably reminded of Monet's paintings of the pond at Giverny, in which you have uh, water plants, aquatic plants, sky reflections, light, all in dazzling combinations. So Daubigny's invention of this watery landscape seen from the middle of the river was enormously influential. We have examples in the exhibition and in the catalog by Pizarro, by Monet, and a host of lesser artists took it up as well. And then in 1872 or 73, Monet decided he would equip his own boat. It was much smaller. It was for day, day outings. And he launched his on the Seine and painted a number of watery landscapes in the region around Argentoy. Uh, in later years, Monet also readapted the idea of painting from a boat near his property at Giverny on the Seine. 
And there are several sequences of paintings by Monet over the years in which you see the point of view become low. The point of view of someone sitting in a boat is a different point of view than someone, say, painting from a shore or a bridge. And so once you get used to noticing this, you can see which are the paintings that Monet executed from a boat, too. So it's quite lovely to to see this sort of fraternal adoption of one artist recognizing a great idea that another artist has had. We haven't mentioned uh, Vincent van Gogh yet, and he's kind of the last titan in the show. Once I read Ninka Bacher's essay in the catalog, I thought, oh, of course Van Gogh was looking at, at Daubigny, but it hadn't really occurred to me before that. How and when does Van Gogh discover Daubigny, and, and what does he find there? Oh, it's it's quite touching, really. You know, when Van Gogh was a young man, before he became a painter, he worked for his uncle, who was an art dealer in The Hague. And then he also worked for Goupils, one of the major international art dealers of the period, in both London and Paris. And in all of those places, he ran into paintings by Daubigny, which spoke to him deeply. So his letters have quite a few references to Daubigny over decades. And he admired Daubigny for the same reasons that he admired Jean-Francois Millet, or Theodore Rousseau. He admired all of them for their very authentic and deeply felt connection to the natural world and for their depiction of a sort of radiant, sincere, pastoral view of landscape and appreciation of the authenticity of the traditions of the peasants and the way they work the land and their lives on the land. All of that was something that Van Gogh could relate to very profoundly. And so his admiration for Daubigny was also comes across in how he speaks about Daubigny as a sort of frank and simple interpreter of nature, of Daubigny's passion for nature. That is something that I believe connected the two artists. Daubigny etched a little personal motto into one of his engravings, which he later effaced, but it was, work keeps the soul joyous. And it's sort of a personal motto of his, I believe. He, he loved, his letters reveal how, how deeply he loved to be outside translating what he called his sensations of nature. And this is very much the same enterprise which so motivated Vincent van Gogh. Then later on, when Van Gogh was studying art, as now as an artist in Paris, he would go to the Musée du Luxembourg, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Paris, and he wrote at different times about different pictures by Daubigny, most notably about Daubigny's Spring, an 1857 picture which is in the exhibition and illustrated in the catalogue, which is a sort of hymn and celebration of spring, an orchard of fruit trees in blossom. And that was something that Van Gogh carried with him. And even later when he worked in Arles, he commented that he was working, when he was painting orchards in spring, that he was continuing the tradition of Daubigny. 
Later, when he did move to Auvers to be under the care of Dr. Gachet in Auvers-sur-Oise, the town where Daubigny had had a, his second home and studio, Van Gogh didn't realize it at first. But he didn't connect the place with Daubigny. But once he arrived there, he, he realized it very quickly. And Dr. Gachet would have told him right away, Dr. Gachet and Daubigny were of the same generation and actually um, served together on the Over City Council, a little known fact. Uh, and I didn't even have a place to put that into the catalog. So there you have it, an exclusive. But Gachet said, oh, yes, Daubigny is, was here. He's deceased. He had been dead for 12 years when, when Van Gogh arrived in Over in 1990. But his widow is still alive. And so Van Gogh went to visit Daubigny's widow to pay his respects, painted the garden of the couple, four different versions of, of it are known to exist, and gave one of them to the widow Daubigny as an homage to this artist whom he had admired all his life. Yeah, there, you mentioned flowering trees a moment ago. There are a lot of flowering trees in, in, in the show, Daubigny, Pizarro, Van Gogh. Tyler, I'd like to correct something that I said earlier. I said that Daubigny defended the works of Cezanne, Pizarro, and Renoir at the, at the, when he served on the Salon Jury in 1865. That was the wrong date. He, he served on the Salon Jury in 1866, and that was when he defended them. And then he defended them again in 1868 and was successful in getting works by Monet, Basile, Degas, and Renoir accepted to the Salon. And finally, he was not successful in getting work by Monet accepted at the Salon of 1870 and quit the jury in disgust as a result. Lynn Ambrosini, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.